Straight out of the heart of Texas, here come the students of conflict, helping you become a better Malifaux player and reach the top of the podium, one game at a time. Welcome to Students of Conflict. We're Clay, Nick, and Doug. Hello! And we are trying to become better Malapopo players, leveling up ourselves and hopefully leveling up others as well. We do that by interviewing top third players, normally from the Lone Star Conference, but sometimes with special guests, like tonight, uh, playing in Malapopo tournaments across the U.S. We're not trying to capture their entire tournament journey here. We want to take an in-depth look at a single game from each of our guests. What were key decisions they made before the game and during the game? And now looking back at the game, what were the things that they learned and that they can pass on to others? Our basic format is to interview the guests all at once, just as soon as possible after the tournament, when it's all fresh in their minds and we can get some good cross flow between the guests. But rather than publishing one long marathon podcast, we break it up, releasing one individual podcast per guest, helping people level up one game at a time. Today we're speaking with Ambrose and Andre, who came in third and first respectively at the Finnish Gamble Malifaux GT, held the 28th and 29th of January at the Las Vegas Open. And we're going to be releasing these as episodes 3A and 3B. So yes, today we are talking to the man, the myth, the legend, the bringer of the pain, Mr. Andre Demings. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, Doug. How are you? I'm doing well. So yeah, we are talking about your recent first place podium at Las Vegas Open. Not to be confused with your first place podiums at other locations. Correct. Yes, this is not Captain Con. Uh, yeah. So what round are we talking about today? Uh, today, we're going to be talking about round two. Uh, which I played into Nick Prinzing's Shenlong 2. Awesome. Of course, you know, I'm getting ahead of myself. There's like all these other icebreaker things to, you know, get us warmed up and mm. all this other stuff. And I'm totally forgetting it because no, no, no. We're, we're just starting this podcast right now and haven't already been talking for an hour. Correct. Yes. Break, break my ice, Doug. What's happening? So what is your favorite minion in the game and why? I think my favorite minion in the game overall, and people probably expect me to say Mature Nephilim, but it's not. Uh, it's actually the Guardian. Uh, the Guardian is my favorite minion in the game. Um, there's a plethora of reasons. Uh, I liked them back in second edition when they hit terribly. I think they had a one three four before they buffed them to two three four, and I loved them even then. But I love them now. Uh, mostly, I'm a, I'm a sword and shield knights kind of guy. Like. That really gets me. That hits me where I live. And Guardians are, they still hold that like lawful neutral protector vibe. And I'm really here for that. Um, and then at the same time, they serve both an offensive and def defensive purpose well on the table. Like greatsword, fantastic attack action. And then take the hit with armor two, eight health for nine cost, but with armor two as well. Uh, so they're also very strong contributors defensively, but then they also have like neat movement tricks, like scatter the T list, just get out of my face. Super nice. Um, and then being able to power transfer to get those little scoots you need. Cause that's kind of where I live as a player is being able to manage positioning perfectly and guardians do that well. And then the toss action, everybody loves a good toss action, like 10 inches at the flip of any card is just a lot of movement. So they all come together into a beautiful package and that's why guardians are my favorite minion. 
I do love toss. It's so good, right? I, I don't know how often I've ever used it offensively. I tend to use it, hey, throw my friend. Yes. I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever played a model with toss. With toss. What? Oh, you have not lived. You're missing out, bud. You have not lived, Ambrose. It's truly. You have not lived until you say, hey, I'm going to huck my uh, master 10 inches that way because he's too good to waste his AP on walking. Yeah. Can you imagine peasants walking? Gross. <laughs> I have toss actions. <laughs> so I got to ask, so on Guardians that, uh, uh, and it being like the highly visual medium that we're in here, are you like in the Guardian who's like this or the Guardian who's like this? <laughs> oh, no, 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 I'm definitely, I'm definitely like, uh, you know, looks like they could be standing at the edge of like a, a very opulent hallway kind of deal. Like the, the fully at attention Guardian. Pose. There you go. Yeah, Guardian one. Yes. Guardian 1, I'm ready to, to pummel. That's right. Now, now, speaking of Guardian sculpts, so we recently had the Charles Hoffman Nightmare Box and all those really cool Nightmare Edition dudes who go with them. We mm-hmm. did not get a Nightmare Edition Guardian. We did not, but, but to their credit, I think they fit the flavor fairly well. They, yeah, I was going to say, did you feel like you, you needed them to be Nightmared up more or do you think they fit that crew without, you know, modification? Yeah, like I said, they hit that classic Sword and Board Knight vibe. Like, anytime I look at a Guardian, even when, like, it's weird, like, all the pipes coming out from behind of its faceplate thing, I can still look at that model and go, man, I'd love for that thing to be guarding my door at night. So I still get that same kind of protectory vibe uh, that I would expect out of, like, a true blue knight. And so I think they fit right in for the the classical fantasy vibe of the nightmare box who did you piss off that you've got to have a guardian guarding your house at night andre listen the the two stories i have to tell of like someone breaks into my home and as a true texan of course i'm armed or someone breaks into my home picks my lock they open the door and there's just a guardian standing there i'd be totally for that that to me is the ideal home defense scenario (laughs) (laughs) okay so yeah so we are talking about Round two of Mm. the uh, Fiendish Gamble GT at Las Vegas Open 2023. Yes, into Nick Prinzig and his Shenlong 2. Also, from the Pacific Northwest area, like our uh, other guest, Ambrose. Yes. So, what were, you know, some of the biggest lessons that you learned in this game and kind of some of the themes for this game for you? Uh, I would say that the theme of this game, when it came down to it, like Damien being Damien aside, really what it came down to for this game was a spread out and hide crew versus a ball and fight crew. And then how that kind of played out. Um, Because when you look at Nick's crew build, and I think we'll talk about that a little bit more later, like you can look at the list and say, okay, he does not really intend to hold me in fight. Like he's not trying to go toe to toe. He's trying to avoid me as much as possible and spread out and go score points, which I think if you're expecting a matchup where like you just can't handle what their ball is going to bring is a perfectly serviceable way to play the game into uh, a ball crew like Damien. And so I think the really the thing that I, if I was going to take a teaching moment out of this game, it was Nick's ability to correctly read how a fight would go and then adapting his strategy to that. And to his credit, despite 
even heralding himself as one of the newer players of the scene, got the closest differential of anyone at that tournament to me because of those choices that he made. So we're going to really be talking about your balls tonight. Yes, we are. Yes, we are, Doug. I think it's important that people understand how impactful my balls can be. And you need to avoid them where possible, because otherwise, you're in for a rough time. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Our listeners are like, unsubscribe, unsubscribe, unsubscribe. <laughs> the five of them that are like, oh my god, you gotta listen to this to all their friends, is more than making up for it. So, absolutely love it. Alrighty, so as we were... <laughs> Oh, right. So we're talking about how uh, uh, Andre's balls and Nick's spread. Oh, my God. It was a great choice on his part. Oh, God. Bless America. Cool. Uh, uh, um, I didn't even know where I was. So, Andre, why did you feel like you had to go Arcanists this tournament? Well, I'd, I'd love to answer that. <laughs> uh, I've I've been on uh, the the Damien Crusade uh, as I have been stylizing it as because the Crusades are cool and I vibe with them on some kind of surface aesthetic level. The yeah, the Damien Crusade has basically been a proof to me that when played at a sufficient level, Damien becomes so gross that you can't stop him. Like, if you're having a mid-player versus a mid-player, anybody can throw the game, right? Like, you can... Anybody has gotten to the end of a game and been like, man, I made some real dumb decisions. And on a lot of times, those are the decisions that can cost you the game as a Damien player. Uh, but at the end of the day, my goal is to prove that it is Damien's game to lose. And as the skill of the Damien player approaches as good as he can possibly be, uh, that he does not lose. And so this was my first foray into trying to prove that to be the case. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would look like you um, kind of proved that. I mean, if uh, you look at the Longshanks standings there, which the Longshanks, Longshanks standings are in the uh, show notes there. Uh, I mean, you went 7-1, I mean, that's, uh, whew, that's a strong showing. That's a fairly commanding showing. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I mean, you missed three points the entire tournament. I did. And every single point that I missed was because things died too fast. Like it was a vendetta that I didn't get the first point on, an assassinate that I didn't get the first point on, and a set the trap that I didn't get the, the first point on. I just hate it when your balls finish too fast. Yeah, you know, you hate it. But, you know, it's important to be able to deal with it. Uh, it happens to a lot of men. Okay, I'm going to try to keep uh, Andre's balls from derailing us again. Uh <laughs> I don't think it's mine. It's <laughs> uh, Damien's balls. Correct. Okay. Hmm. So, uh, Elvio. Yes. Did you end up changing up your list at all, or did you play a fixed crew the entire tournament? No, I played uh, the same fixed crew the entire tournament. Uh, the The list in its entirety uh, has been Damien 2, of course, his totem, Lohith, Bellabantine, Marco, Mia, three Soulstone Gammon, and six Stone Catch. And I've played that every competitive Damien 2 game I have ever played. Okay, and so there's never really a reason for you to change that up? Um, so far, no. I have played into a variety of crews that have either seen me coming or not been able to prepare beforehand. And each and every time, 
whatever random crew combination comes together to try to defeat that particular crew, for a variety of reasons, it does not work out. So lacking any reason to adapt, I have not. It has been a crew that works with basically any pool in GG3 and basically into any crew. Okay, so now before the game, so obviously you know that crew inside and out. You know that crew better than the back of your hand. Because let's be honest, if you asked me to describe the back of my hand, I wouldn't be able to actually describe it other than, you know, pale and white. Sure. But you know that crew inside and out, upside and down, blindfolded in your sleep. Yes. You're, you know, dreaming of the configuration. Essentially, yes. I could list off, I think, every trigger in every model in that crew, if I really wanted to. Let's not test that theory, but I think I could. Okay. We'll believe you. Cool. So, being said that, you know, you know that crew inside and out. What else did you do to prepare for this round, but even more, this event in general? Well, I think the thing that I really tried to do to prepare for this event in general is to get as many reps in, of course, as I could on the crew. Um, and then in the same vein, try to find the best players that could play into me on this crew, and as well as try to play into a variety of attempted answers to Damien and see how that pans out. Because I think that the strongest crews can be played into people that know exactly what they wish to do. And Damien certainly is no exception to that understanding. Basically, I try to play everything above board for all the practice rounds. Uh, you know, here's my crew. Here's what it can do. You know what this guy does, all that stuff. You know, And we had multiple reps of it, right? Because you know the first round into anything can be like, oh man, I messed that up. Play that again. And so when I got those practice games in, I think that really set me up for really understanding what I could do with the Damien 2 crew. And at the same time, why I didn't need to adapt to any other style of play for Damien. Because I tried a couple of Damien 1 games, and I was like, this isn't doing it for me. Not like Damien 2 is capable of doing. Because the, the common wisdom for the Damien's is, play Damien 2 unless you're playing into like a reduction crew, then play Damien 1 because of his trigger. Uh, and I found that not to be the case. Uh, Damien 2 can just savage the crap out of a peacekeeper uh, in one activation if he really just has to uh, and there's not really a whole lot that the peacekeeper can do to stop him uh, and if the peacekeeper who is pretty much the poster child for damage reduction can't stop damien 2 from killing it then i don't really care to have exposed flaws when i can have damien 2 and so i think that was actually also a crucial part of kind of the the pre-convention uh understanding of damien to get me to this point to play at lvo well, I mean, uh, Damien uh, ones, you know, hey, exposed flaw, that's on one model. Right. Damien two, you're evaporating multiple models a turn. Correct. Yeah, I have more crew to kill in the same activation, and I can't just say, oh, cool, that one model died, I'm good. Because oftentimes, if, especially if you're holding a scrum with two models, you need multiple models to die in an activation, and Damien's capable of it, so I went with that. Can I Can I jump in? Oh, yeah, go go right ahead, Ambrose. Like, I, I don't want to derail the, the Damien... Hate train. Oh no, no, no worries. We've we've been derailed. We're getting back on the train. <laughs> but like the what Andre just described in terms of running reps, running them fully above the board, running the the batch again with the same player so that they know what to expect, so that you're guaranteeing you have you know a, a good matchup. That that is just good advice, regardless of whether or not you're trying to break the game or just get better. Sure. Like I am. I am fully in the camp of if you have the reps in what you're doing you're going to have a better experience and better results than if you you know try and get too fancy with your your picks like knowing when to tech is an important skill and to what degree use single master or single list is is 
kind of a personal preference, but there is definite value to be gained from just knowing your stuff really, really good. Um, and I know Andre is a big proponent of that. And that's kind of where I found myself like land as well. And, you know, let's say you're the first time going to a five round tournament, the brain drain is real. And just making sure that you play the reps with one crew before you go there and then play that crew, you're going to have a better time. 100% agree. Well, and I think that while well, Andre is really the, uh, the poster boy for this Texas, we really do strongly believe that, hey, get those reps in, know your crew inside and out. Because if you know everything that your crew can do, you know how your crew can get out of all the situations that other people will put you into. But yeah, so other stuff uh, before the game. You know, let's go, let's go through the pool. What was the pool? Not like it mattered to you, because Damien. Sure. But yeah, so the pool uh, round two, we had, uh, it was standard deployment, mm-hmm. guard the stash. Breakthrough, assassinate, catch and release, spread them out, and public demonstration. Yes. When you see a pool like that, what do you think? Uh, I think to myself, with guard the stash and assassinate in the pool, I think to myself, this is going to be an especially easy game for Damien. Uh, Because Damien likes to stand and fight and deliver, uh, he doesn't like cagey matches uh, where he can avoid them. If my opponent also tries to fight in a clump and I'm fighting in a clump that more likely than not my clump's going to win and so I was feeling relatively confident in that regard going into the round Uh, and then for the most part I tried to it's weird so I described Damien as more likely than not going for a six-point game uh, because too many of the schemes require that your opponent survives to a given point of the game and you can't guarantee that so for me, the six-point game that I picked, for the because my schemes that I picked were obviously Assassinate, and I also picked Catch and Release on one of my Soulstone Gammon. And the thought was that if the game ends, or if my opponent's crew evaporates on contact with my crew, what are the points that I can score? And if his master is full health to dead, I can still score one point for Assassinate. And if his entire crew is wiped, then a Soulstone Gammon can clear the 50-yard line and score the second point for Catch and Release at the end of the game. And so that was literally what I signed on for, was a six-point game on Guard the Stash. Uh, I managed to get the seventh point uh, with the second point on Catch Release, but Shen Long did indeed die in one activation, as I had anticipated, uh, and I only got one point for Assassinate, which is one of the points that I lost for this this tournament. Um, But looking at that pool, I was like, cool, I've got this in the bag because it's going to be a very fighty pool, and my opponent is unlikely to try to either unlikely to try and stop me at that, or if he does try, I'm more than likely going to take that scrum. So a big theme for this game was your group up and fight versus Nick's spread out and hide. Correct. So you looked at the way uh, Nick built his crew. What with that screamed to you the spread out and hide? So his list, just to say it, was Shenlong the Teacher, of course his two totems, uh, a pair of samurai, three wandering river monks, two low river monks, and a terracotta warrior. And basically, right off the bat, I was thinking, cool, no one's going to bring an 11-man triple wandering river monk crew and think to themselves, I'm going to fight it out. Like, that's just... <laughs> that's that's clearly not what his plan is. <laughs> which, which I must reiterate, is a great choice. Uh, monks, in general, have a better time than most of trying to dodge Damien because they can go to stat seven on either defense or willpower. 
And so if he can get those kings in hand and save the chi when he needs it to dodge Damien attacks, it's not a bad idea. And Wandering Over Monks can do that. They have Butterfly Jump, which also proves to be annoying. And then like the whole plan is to not get anywhere near Damien anyway. So I liked what he built to try and play this game because obviously I think he was going for breakthrough and spread them out uh, because obviously staying away from the center was all part of his game plan. And I will say that his plan, to his credit, of anyone who had a plan at LVO Endemy was the plan that worked the best. Uh, he was able to score the fabled third point for LVO, and he, frankly, had bad luck while doing it. Lohith in this game popped very hard off. Like, the black jokers for his defense, the red jokers for my attacks and damage, like, Lohith was having the game of his career. Even with that, like the samurai, their original intended job of just like standing there and be like, come fight me while all of my wind monks go do other stuff. Uh, I liked that he did that. Like he didn't try to run no front line. He ran presumably the minimum amount of front line he hoped he would need to hold me long enough to go score points. And I think that his crew build was well built in that regard. So if Lohith hadn't popped off, uh, and I think he made one key mistake early with a samurai that he scooted, he four winds punched it close into gun range, uh, but it also, because it is always six inches on the four winds punch, he punched it close enough that it got to within range for Lohith to start taking attacks at it, uh, and that cost him quite a bit. And uh, you were uh, chucking rocks at him? No, no, no. Lohith just ran after him, ran in to the huge fist, because his, his sword's kind of okay but like the gun if i let him pick his targets that could be bad for me so i would rather him have to punch lohith even if he ignores his armor than do anything to anyone else yeah because uh, that uh two four six with the uh positive flip and then yes. the possibility for burst damage drop dropping blasts into a uh, grouped up crew is a way to crack it if you can Correct, yeah. So if he could get to my back line, that would actually be an issue for me, which is why, like I said, I ran up and engaged him as quickly as I could. They also died on contact. But if they hadn't, I would. the goal would have been just to keep them engaged so they can't shoot my back line. And so it felt like his strategy for this was have the uh, samurai clog you up, make you uh, take care of them, while everyone else ran around and did their thing. Correct. Played their games, not your game. Correct. And I think that's the way to play it, right? Like, don't play to Damien's strengths he wants to fight don't fight him unless you just think you can somehow outclass him which i haven't seen happen yet but short of that like and and this goes for any crew don't play into their strengths if they're a stand and fight crew try not to stand and fight them um and i think he did very very well adjudicating that that is how that was going to go and i think it is only because i'm able to adapt to someone trying to avoid the ball fight that i was able to take the game as with as much of a lead as i did Okay, and so here's the question, um, and I feel like this helps, uh, is really a uh, teachable moment as far as, uh, not just with Damien, mm -hmm. but with any ball crew versus spread out crew. How do you make your, you know, bubble adapt when they're like, okay, you're going to be a bubble, we're going to, you know, scatter to the winds. How do you pivot to take that on? Like I said, as soon as I saw his crew, I knew what his plan was, right? And so I knew that I wasn't going to be able to run the typical routine of just running Lohith and Damien straight up the gut and having a fight and then winning the game that way. Like, I was likely to take the guard the stash points just because the two central points are really a lot of what you fight over uh, for the strategy points themselves. But his game was to probably get like one or two points with guard by going deep for the corner, guard the stash points, 
uh, it's my back line, uh, and then to try and score full points on spread them out and breakthrough. So I knew that like I wasn't going to be able to afford sending anything more than realistically Lohith and maybe Belventine down the center uh, because Damien had a job of killing the monks before they scored their points. Uh, and so that's how I adapted. And I think that's how most people should adapt if they are a clump and fight crew fighting someone who doesn't want to clump and fight. You must be able to run the rep of being able to say, okay, cool, I would like to clump and fight, but can't. What does that look like? And it just kind of panned out for me in this one because, you know, there's two sides of the flanks. He had one flank with two monks and one flank with one monk. So Damien got to pick the the more populous side uh, and wipe them out. And because, you know, Wandering River monks are very cagey models, but Shenlong doesn't have a lot of card manipulation and Damien does. Uh, so once that first attack connected and all their defensive stats dropped from the injured, that was enough to catch the monks. And they were, had the absolute audacity to be within four of each other, which was enough for the double blast to catch them both. And so that caused his ability to run, spread them out and break through to collapse. Um, and that is where I was able to keep that four point differential, uh, despite his uh, efforts to the contrary. So is is Damien always like in this in this type of game? Is Damien always your hunter? Uh, he's the best at it. Lohith isn't very. Lohith can get to an enemy, but he can't get to a point in space very well. Uh, and the simple matter is, Damien has a pull, and Damien has three AP, uh, and that usually is enough to get him to where he needs to go to kill scheme runners. Wandering River Monks are about the wiliest scheme runners he has to deal with because they're one of the only ones capable of like dodging an attack from him uh, and then at the same time butterfly jump is also really really nice but with that being the case the the rest of my front line like lohith he he can hunt wandering river monks but he doesn't have the ap necessary to chase them down and kill them when they dodge the first attack like damien does because once lohith charges takes his one huge fist attack and they say haha here's a king 20 defense butterfly jump that's it like he can throw a rock but it's probably not going to kill him. But Damien, he has that extra AP. So yes, Damien typically ends up being my hunter just because of that extra movement, that extra you know enemy being able to pull. Uh, he ends up being my, my side hunter more so than the other guys, just because they're much better at a static fight. Well, now then, are you also using your uh, the refraction through like your uh, gammon then to like cover the other wing? with say Damien or various other stuff. Yes. So Maya did actually score the finishing touch on a wandering river monk. Uh so as I mentioned, because the two monks were within four of each other, I five blast blast forward into the other monk and it left him in a hit point. Uh and that dude went on to score I think all three of the points that he scored that game. Uh because he finished the spread them out, he got a breakthrough and he scored one point for the strategy because of the marker that he stood next to. Because that one hit point monk killed one of my two gammon that I lost this tournament in that engagement with that one hit point. And I think that being able to get to my back line was actually a problem. Like refraction is cool. I don't want my gammon to be the closest thing to you. And so, like I said, my gammon did die to that monk that was able to get away and score those points. But Maya was able to finish him off because another gammon was like, here you go, Maya, we're in range. Um, so refraction is also very helpful for chasing down those edge, the, those edge of the board scheme runners. Uh, you, you obviously got your uh, core ball, you know, mm -hmm. running up there. It tends to be uh, Damien, Lohith, and Bell, right? Yes. So 
formation-wise, where do your gammon tend to run? They run as far back as they can while still maintaining their ability to heal the front line. So they have a three-inch range ability to heal someone for one point with no flip, but they can cast that from eight of someone who has the House of the Soul. So oftentimes the gammon are like eight inches or so behind Lohith because typically Damien's the f- more forward of the two pieces. And so, and they want to stay as far away from the enemy as possible because gammon are easy to kill if you can reach them. And Maya's the same way. She doesn't want to get any closer than within eight of the models she's casting through. So whether that's a gammon that's kind of close to the front line, but enough that she can still jinx 10 inches from it, or if she has to get close enough to low hit the cast from him, that that is so be it. But eight inches from behind the front line is the easiest way to think about it. Okay, so your, your back line does move up with you. and They're not a static back line staying back like a gun line. They do have to move up a little bit with you. Eventually. So turn one, none of my gammon, Mia, or my box take walk actions. I actually leave AP on the table because the gammon are safer having not left the deployment zone than having moved up at all. Because those move up at all moments are when you're like, cool, uh, I'm going to activate the lone marshal and he's going to run a gun to right here, stat seven gun, chick click, kabam, dead. And you're like, man, I could have avoided that if I had just stayed behind a rock, not left the deployment zone. So a lot of the times uh, they just stand still turn one. Even I could move them and don't. And I think that waiting until Damien and Lohith, you know, they're kind of the leading barrage. And once they clear out a spot for the gammon to exist unabated, that is when they start to move up the board. Because uh, Damien and Lohith typically don't need the healing that fast turn one. And if they do, I can always walk, walk bonus as necessary. Well, so you're, you're using the um, healing off the gammon to effectively using Lohith's health pool to give you positive flips. Only when I need it. Uh, for the most part, uh, Damien supplies himself with enough focus that I am capable of just wiping crews without needing the, the straight flips being generated from low hits. So for the most part, attack, Damien's attack routine is, I have connected with the chain, you haven't injured. I'm going to blow my focus that I got from my chain attack, because I for sure stoned for that if I don't have it in hand. Straight flip to damage from focus, kaboom, two more injured. And at that point, you are three down on what your defensive stat already was and likely it was at best equal damien to start and then you start getting into that part of the turn where the other players like i have other things i would like to accomplish with my cards in hand and none of them are cheat this five plus three that i flipped into a 12 or a 13 right like that's not where they want to spend their high cards so it gets to the point psychologically with the other players like I'm not going to cheat this. There's no point. And at that point, you have free reign on straight flips anyway. I actually, I think I used Lohith's aura to give Damien straight flips to damage maybe three or four times over the course of this tournament. Uh, other than that, the box giving him a focus and he getting his own focus every turn is usually enough. It was into, you know, into King's Wall where like, um, or into Cavalier where sure. there was like extra, extra negatives. That sure. shouldn't really exist, but they do. Luckily, you've got that sweet I did. tech. I did. Yeah. I wanted to uh, to circle back, if you don't mind, on when sure. you were talking about the gammon and leaving AP on the table. Did that drive you crazy, <laughs> having to do that? <laughs> and, and like, just could you talk about that as kind of a level up moment? You know, the, the realization that sometimes being a super aggressive player, the, the right action is is not to you know to leave ap on the table that's crazy right yeah no it feels super inefficient to start uh but every time so a couple of my initial games of damien right 
featured me moving my gammon up the board, like right behind Damien Alohith, because it felt like I should. And then watching them just get picked off by like, you know, a coked out swine cursed or something like that. And then being like, man, if that dude had just stood still, he'd have been fine. Uh, and so like the, the biggest value the gammon get are by existing, right? Like they don't have to hit duels. They don't like the range that they get from refraction is such that it really don't have to move up. So like being on the table. They just feed the configuration. Yeah. Exactly. Feed it and keep it full are their two jobs. If I get to start turn two with a five cards in my configuration, Damien can activate immediately and have two suits. And that is huge. And so literally their greatest contribution is to just stay on the table. And if staying on the table means that they have to hide behind a bunch of rocks in my deployment zone, then guess what my gammon are doing? So yeah. Concentrating and maybe dropping a scheme marker to psych someone out? Correct. Or they'll have like pillow fights where they <laughs> cast drain at each other to draw cards out of my config. Whatever the case may be, they can serve most of their purpose never seeing combat. And so that's where they like to stay until I have to like, okay, I guess I'll run covert by flinging this game and out over there. But that's usually after the first one or two points of a strategy have been scored and that like more than likely the opponent has lost half to two thirds of their crew. And you're, you're running the uh, gammon out to an empty wing then. Correct, yeah. Usually usually the gammon are playing by themselves at all stages of the game. They they do not want to see combat. Knowing when just keeping a model alive is the best plan is absolutely a, an important skill-up moment. But I also want to like shine a spotlight that this is also a canary in the mind that something is wrong with this crew, that it, a puzzle box and four gammon, which is like... 30 actions um for your crew um if if the best thing they can do for you is just hang out you know that's that's definitely fundamental something's fundamentally wrong in an action economy based game um if if you can afford even cheap ones if you can afford that many models not doing something something's not right totally agree you're accomplishing so much with honestly such a smaller percentage of your crew those that feels a little overtuned then yes if 12 stones of my models at least can just sit in the deployment zone and be like no 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 the front three guys got this like that's a problem so what were some key decisions that you ended up having to make during this game because as you said strong crew out of the gates mm -hmm. but you said nick gave you you know the the tightest differential during the tournament what were some key decisions you had to make during this game? The the best decision I made as a Damien player was to have to kind of control the bloodlust of like seeing the fight in the middle, right? Like, cause there was Shenlong and a uh, terracotta and some low rivers and the pair of samurai. And I'm like, man, I would love to fight that, but I can't because four points are riding on the three guys running up the sides and whether or not they live or die. And so having to be like, yep, I'm going to go kill five stone models with my coked out master because that's where his points are, was, I think, the decision that I had to make in order to win this game. And so I think that running out after the pair of Wandering River Monks that were close enough to each other to blast off of, um, and then just trying to end their careers as quickly as I could, was the line of play that I think was most important. Additionally, also being able to gauge that Lohith is, even sans his master, still an incredibly intimidating model for people that can't stop him from going to a straight flip because with samurai that's what happened to both samurai both samurai took two hits from lohith to die and so being able to say cool i'm going to be able to confirm spike severe six twice into these samurai and they're never going to get to activate uh and being able to gauge that is 
an important measurement of how that fight's going to go beforehand and being able to say like, all right, cool, Lohith can handle this. He's got this. He's going to turn those samurai into soul stones. Damien needs to go run off to the side. And if he needs help, then I have Valentine. I think those were probably the lines of play that were most important for me when it, when it came to just kind of gauging how the game was going to go and then playing to what his game was, right? Because it's, it's this, it's this hand, over, hand over hand on the broom. Like, I want to have a, a, a big fight in the middle. He's going to try to avoid a big fight in the middle. How do I avoid him avoiding the big fight in the middle? And once I got to that point, I had the game in hand. Okay, and so then, um, as I said, we said before there, you know, he had the uh, tightest differential there. What were some key decisions that he made that helped him tighten up that differential? So he sent Shen Long into the middle after his samurai started getting bodied. And I think that was probably a wise call because it spent more time for me having to clean up the center instead of being able to dedicate Bellamantine and Lohith to getting Damien over to the other side of the board to go hunt the other Wandering River Monk. And that cost me denying him more points because those Wandering River Monks were basically, they, they, they were uh, the soldiers holding me off long enough so that the objectives could get done. And I think that was a good call. Like, it's always so painful to be like, my master is going to die right now, and that's okay. I need the points. Especially with Assassinate in the pool. Yes. You're like, and he doesn't know that you've taken Assassinate yet, though he may have suspected that. But it's like, oh my goodness, that is a tough, tough call. Yes. And so, but I still think it was the right call tying my center forces up while he continues to run the flanks. Because the only thing I could really send to the flanks was Damien. Like, Maya's not going to go fisticuffs with monks. Uh, my gammon weren't ready for that. Uh, Marco's job, he was already hung up trying to get Damien into position for the flanks. So I think that sticking to his game plan, because a lot of the times, especially when you have like a resounding oh god moment, like right on turn one, right? Because his samurai got pushed up the board and then died immediately. Never got to activate, was just immediately bodied. And being able to like psychologically come out of that, being like, okay, I'm going to stick to my game plan. And not just that, to Nick's credit, he was laughing the whole time. Just like watching that samurai just instantly get pasted. He was like, <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, and then still committed to the plan, right? Like he didn't, he wasn't like, oh dude, I bet my wandering river monks could pick off some, some backline gammon here instead of trying to run these points. Like, no, he stuck to the plan. And I think that was a very strong showing of his discipline and commitment to seeing a game plan through. I think that's one of the hardest lessons a Malifaux player has to learn to really go from, hey, be middle of the pack there to climbing up to the podium there. Because that knowing the, as we, we say it a lot, you know, play Malifaux, not Killifaux. That is a hard decision to make yes and uh he he definitely showed his chops and his ability to to stick to that plan and not just stick to that plan but like be able to i don't know how else to describe this efficiently but like make the morale check right because like at some point if you have a game plan that's cool but if you get clocked in the face right at the start of that or like this big thing goes real wrong real fast being able to recover and not just be like uh uh i have default to attack closest like being able to stay out of that mindset is really important and that's why he got the points that he did big credit to him for not getting tilted off of that yeah that's such a big part of malifo is being able to keep a cool head even when things are going wrong because you know bad things happen nick totally knew what he was getting into with this 
match. Um, and I really proud of him that he stuck to just like some really solid fundamentals um, and understood the matchup and played it out, you know, knowing, knowing what was coming at like really stoked to have him in my group. Cause that that's awesome to see. Absolutely. Super cool. Yeah. That definitely does a lot of credit to him. There is that, that, that stick into that plan, that sticking it out, keeping it as, tight as possible i I feel like any other master other than damien this becomes a very close game there's other masters like hey you know what that samurai could get spiked first turn and could throw him off and if it's a different master you know what that that is isn't a 7-3 game that's you know a uh 5-3 game yes and oftentimes it's that differential that keeps you from fourth or third and i think that's a lot of the times where the the mid almost top third players if they can cinch up their discipline in that regard i think it's going to go a long way because the other thing is like it's also really tempting to scoop after a big loss early in the game and being able to fight through that and be like all right cool how do i play from behind because a lot of times you get players that start getting those wins and they're like oh awesome i'm i'm getting good at the game and then when they get into that rhythm of winning and then something just happens we're like oh Ate a red on my master, second hit connected, master's body. Uh, how do I play from behind? And they have no idea because they've spent so much time not learning how to lose that they can't adapt to that situation. And they're like, eh, screw it and scoop. And they learn nothing. And I think that being able to stick it out, even when you're getting demolished, is oftentimes where you learn the most. Yeah, I, I think that's, you know, uh, an important thing to learn. Like when you're playing your friendly games, instead of doing the scoop and reset, play it out. It's like, yeah, you know what? If we scoop and reset, we can get in another game tonight. Or we can play it out and learn those lessons. I, I advocate for both of those things, actually. I think that there's also some culture of, oh, I'm going to learn better from my mistakes. And I messed up this unpack and I'm never going to learn if I don't. Um, if I don't eat this on the chin. Um, but I think there's I, I don't think. I learn better from my mistakes is true for a lot of people. I think if, if someone actually throws a game with a positioning within like the first turn, it's usually something, you know, when I'm, when I'm against the table at someone, they make a, they make a movement. I ask, are you sure you want to move there? Look at this. And they say, no, yeah, yeah, I want to do that. And then they see the results of their action. And then, <laughs> and then right. Like if, it, if it's that much of a mistake, um, returning to the start so that they can play it right is going to ingrain the correct play in, in them. Um, but I, I don't want to detract from, from the original point here too, that like you have to be able to play from behind in order to consistently show up for, for events. Um, and, mm-hmm. and that means getting to a point where, Oh shit, I lost this game, but now I just need to keep the differential as close as possible. That is a, that is an important skill. And you know, every once in a while you shoot the moon and you turn it into a win anyways. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, this kind of sockets into, uh, None of the question there is. So, what advice would you give to a bottom third player playing into your crew here? Uh, you know, and we've stated this a, a few times on this podcast now, but play Malifo, not Kilifo, I think is the best way to sum it up. Like, combat is not necessarily how you win the game. Like, all models seem to have attack actions, and so it baits people and be like, ah, yes, fight to win. But for the most part, it is kind of a, a backdrop to how you actually score the points uh and i think this game if anyone can take anything away from it it's that it he strove to completely ignore combat and score points 
And he walked away from LVO with the best game into me because of it. Uh, and I think for a bottom third player, not getting caught up and just trying to fight is the best advice that I can give from this game. Definitely. How do I score my points? Should be the first question you ask. Exactly. Middle tier player. What could they uh, take away from this? Uh, I think a middle player moment uh, was four wins punching the samurai up the board to get within range of low hit. So basically what I want to say for this is generally speaking, if both of you are out of range of each other, right? Like, like combat effectiveness, like he's got hands, he's got a gun, whatever the case may be. If you both have similar threat ranges and your opponent's crew is stronger at fighting, don't approach. Whatever it takes, make him waste the AP starting the fight. Because if Lohith had had to give up one of his attacks to get into range to fight the samurai, the samurai is still alive. Um, so even if the samurai took no offensive actions during that first turn, as long as he doesn't die, he's already further along in the game than he was than if he had tried to take a couple of pot shots at Lohith by getting into range. So basically what I would say is every AP that your opponent spends walking towards you is one that you didn't have to spend walking, and you get closer to death closer to not dying for every AP that your opponent doesn't spend attacking. So completely commit to KG play when necessary. And when necessary is usually when the opponent is better at fighting than you are as a crew. All right. What's some advice for a, a top third player here? I would say that the top third player perspective as the Damien player for, you know, being in firm, firm control of the game, right? If you're already in a firm control of the game, you expect to win a brawl, that kind of thing. Don't, be afraid to give up a brawl that isn't forming to go after scheme writers. Because a lot of times I actually had this happen in a game at Nova uh, where I played into a Hoffman player and I was playing Seamus and he was a Hoffman player. So Hoffman players, they love to ball fight. And so he walked up to the board fully expecting me to just kind of walk out and fight. And I didn't. I stuck behind terrain and didn't come out at all. And he had to walk into my deployment zone to start a fight. And I guess the, the point that I'm trying to make here is like being able to adapt to when your opponent doesn't want to play how you want to play the game is very, very important. Because if you keep expecting the fight to happen because it happens every time you play this master and then it doesn't happen that way, that can often be where you just like take it out. So being able to adapt to outside of what you designed your crew to do is what separates mid players from top players. Because if I had just been like a regular Damien player and being like, wait, hold on, where are all your wandering river monks going? I think I seriously could have taken an L here. Andre, that's that's really evocative of what you said when you were on um, Swamp Fiends talking about soloing mm -hmm. and how you, you get to plumb the hidden depths of a master for how to play them in their in their less than ideal situations. Yes. And and that is the skill that lets you flex into oh shit he doesn't want to fight me and still still come out. Like yes, that that extra layer of being able to play models suboptimally but optimally to the scenario I think is a huge key of what sets solo players apart from adapt to any master players. So we had a question here from uh, Diceman87 on the Discord. It's often said that players learn more from a loss than a win. Now, you've been very vocal about your concerns for Witness due to its power level. Mm. Do you find Witness could teach bad play because of how forgiving it is? I would say yes, but for a variety of reasons and not necessarily the reasons you think. So taking my crusade at its face value, people can be like, oh, the problem is, is that Damien is just too strong. 
and therefore anyone who plays him will be just too strong and that's bad for new players and like the line of logic there is somewhat correct the problem is twofold one yes damien shuts down lines of play that aren't shut down by basically any other crew in the game being able to say you can't use soul stones is unique to like neurotoxins reser aura out of their efficiaries and now damien and damien cashes in on it way harder than the rest of them do and not having to deal with an opponent's soul stones is huge and not normal. Uh, so being able to teach someone that like, oh, that's a full health master with seven stones, I can kill him in one activation. Like that's just never going to happen anywhere else. And so setting people up to kind of expect that is itself bad. But I'll also say that Damien is bad for newer players because the difference between like a bottom Damien or a mid Damien and a top player Damien is miles and leagues because there's so many things that the crew can do to unlock new avenues of play and still come out on top that it's bad for pl new players to try to get in on Damien uh, because they can't possibly master everything that Damien's capable of performing as a new player until they get used to a more, quote, standard game of Malifaux to then be able to understand how to play around that as a Damien player. So we've got another question uh, from the Discord that kind of sockets directly into that from uh, Islander. If you know your opponent's crew is overtuned, do you adapt any part of your preparations or play style accordingly? Yes, of course. Well, and like overtuned typically always means can fight really good. Like even at the height of Colette's power, her overtunedness was still such that she can sh shut down a fight, right? Uh, so good at fighting is typically what overtuned means. And so basically you just have to play around trying to rob them of that fight. Like, as an example, Damien loves a brawl. Deny it. Don't fight him. Toll loves it when you group together. Are you a ball crew? Sucks. Don't ball. Because that dude can end your whole crew's career right now if he just hits the right triggers and you're clumped up. So don't play his game of grouping. And at the same time, understand what, you're, what the overtuned parts of the crew are and try to shut that down. Like, Toll, once again, as an example... He loves his totems nearly and dearly because they generate the cards that he needs to either hit TNs or give the extra card for basically free AP around the board. If you can sacrifice a model to be like, yep, I'm going to kill one or both of your totems. Here it is. He dies. That's fine. Toll is already so much further behind on his game without his totems that even though he is a fight and win the brawl master, he still is much further behind in that regard if you can play to what his weaknesses are. So basically all that to say if they're overtuned, figure out how they are overtuned and don't play their game in that regard. Crew building helps too, as an example. Like, Damien doesn't like it when you have hard to wound, so bring a bunch of hard to wound. You know, if you have an option to play an incorporeal model into Toll, do that, because a lot of his damage is pings and splashes off of attack damage, uh, and incorporeal can just soak right through that. So crew building helps a lot to try and counter those as well. So, um... Another question from the Discord. Yeah, might as well field those here. Uh, Diceman87 says, LVO was one of the first convention events stateside this year to pull in large numbers of players from multiple metas. What was the biggest difference to your home meta you saw at LVO, and how did it impact your approach to the game? Well, you know, we brought three Texans, and I was one of them, and I got to play the other two, so it wasn't too far from home. <laughs> uh, but... The biggest question that you really have to ask yourself and to people that you don't know personally or recognize is, you know, who is this? Are they like the biggest fish in their pond? You know, do other players in the meta go, oh, you better watch out for fill in the blank. 
Like, is it that guy? Or is it just like some random Joe Blow who's like here to pop a couple of beers and have fun? Uh, because that oftentimes sets the pace for a game anyway. Uh, because being able to gauge aggression, card management, crew building, etc. Like if I know a player personally, and I know that he sucks really, really bad at card management, I can spend like the first part of a round being like, cool, I'm going to throw a bunch of duels on a part of a board that doesn't matter, but I can make it seem like it really does. And so when his whole hand gets blown, defending this, you know, Rocketeer or whatever off to the side of the map, and then it comes around to Toll's turn or the King's Wall's turn, or me attacking either of those models, and he doesn't have those cards anymore, I can make that work. But if I don't know who that player is or what his skills and weaknesses are, you kind of have to play from a more neutral centered play style until you can kind of figure out how they are. Like if they double walk out of a deployment zone and set up past the center line, you're like, okay, cool. This guy has no problem playing aggressive. Uh, but until you gauge that, you kind of have to play a little bit more cautiously. And then at the same time, you can also be more nervous. I feel more comfortable playing into people I know. And so coming back into that like practiced play is really important because it leaves me time to think about what being able to analyze what my opponent is doing instead of having to think about oh so what should i activate next because if i just know what my first seven activations are i'm like cool i'm just going to sit here and flip cards and i'm going to watch what he's doing to see how i think he's going to play this game do you ever feed stuff to your opponent either him or her just to try to gauge hand management strength or aggression or or anything like that there, there are several occasions that i can call to mind just like as anecdotes where it's like i have a duel that i'm going to throw an attack on you know it's my you know a mature back in my Nikima days runs out he takes one attack at some guy off to the sideboard you know nothing really big is happening and they're like oh man and they throw a king at trying to dodge that attack that i didn't even like blow a focus for i'm like oh either your hand is stacked as hell or you're bad at cards management and so oftentimes you can use those as indicators uh but i will also say that i do intentionally uh, when it comes to like really close matches, I will feed my opponent questions to get them thinking about the parts of the board that I want them to think about. You could argue it's above or below board a bit, but like just being like watching them think about their next activation and be like, hey, uh, how much health does that Rocketeer have left? Oh, okay, cool. And then at that point, they're like, oh, is he is he thinking about killing my Rocketeer? Maybe I should activate him first. You've fucking done this to me and it sucks <laughs> so much. <laughs> I fall for it every time. It's the head game. It's the head game. Oh, man. So, yeah, no, it's it's stuff like that uh, where, you know, if they have a game plan and commit to it, then, like, the Rocketeer health question doesn't phase them at all. But sometimes if they're real not sure about what their next plan is, uh, because oftentimes that can tell me what kind of plan do they have. If they don't have one, what is the Rocketeer's health remaining is 100% going to define how they play that next activation, right? Isn't that Rocketeer is going to activate because clearly you care about it. Clearly I care, right. So there's, you know, and that's a specific example, but there's a lot of little ways that you can kind of, you know, test the defenses, see what kind of things they're thinking about or how highly they value certain pieces on the board or what they think of their hand and be able to then adjust my play style accordingly, not just like how I'm, you know, building a crew, but being like, oh, I can play aggressively because he's going to hold back or, oh, I can wait for him to come to me because he's for sure going to aggress. Something I also got out of this conversation there is I've got a new name for random unnamed player. We now have Phil in the blank. <laughs> yeah. Good old Phil. That is now, instead of just calling someone Jimmy, no, 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 it's Phil, Phil in, in the, the blank. blank. Yes. I like that you've been sitting on this for like 12 
actual minutes. Yes. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I wrote it down. So I wouldn't uh, forget that joke. Solid show notes here. By the way, it's spelled like not with a K on the end, it's with a C. Oh, because he's clearly in the blanc. Uh, in the blanc is yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. A, a French derivative. Yeah, yeah. He flew in from across the pond to play. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it's a terrible joke, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, parting questions from Ambrose or Clay. I had wanted to ask one, and it was, uh, uh, we've had some, some questions from Diceman that uh, I know that Jim had, had taken you on and got uh, the closest differential of any time out of your Damien run. Yes. Um, certainly, Nick here at this tournament got the closest differential at LVO, but, but ever, I think that that goes to Diceman and maybe somebody online. Yes. But, but um, could you talk to the, the game against uh, Diceman at Captain Con and what he did there. Um, another another uh, came close to beating you ish. Yes, close ish. I guess on, it was uh, close. on Damien. Uh, so the closest game, yeah. So he played. It was my round one, which was wild to me. I did not think that round one was going to be my hardest round uh, at Captain Con, but it was. Uh, so he played Ophelia one, and basically what it came down to is that because Ophelia does all of her damage at a range, I had to close. And closing costs me AP. This goes back to my let the enemy spend the AP getting to you thing. And I thought I had caught him off guard, right? Because he set up his two ski markers. He had 12 cups. He's going to give her two focuses a bonus and start shooting. And I'm like, ha ha, I'm going to drag her into my crew early. And that, while my plan did work and she never gained her two focus, uh, it still put Damien in a place that like really, really sucked uh, because his whole crew was in range. And they're like, cool, cock it and blast it. Let's see what happens. And he threw so much damage downrange that actually at, uh, I think it was either, I think it was beginning of turn three, Damien just died. Like, that was the only death I've ever had in my Damien career on Damien, and he died into uh, Jim's Ophelia. It was only shortly after Ophelia had died, uh, so the game was kind of a messy play from behind for both of us, uh, where he's sitting there frantically trying to guess what my schemes are because I haven't really declared them yet. And me slowly creeping up the board with my back line uh, because he had Sammy and Raphael left. And Lohith was like, I would love to fight you right now. And so the uh, the game got real scrappy real quickly after that. But that was the closest I ever got to losing a game straight out. Because if he had been able to drop and body Damien without losing Ophelia, I'm not sure I could have come back from that. Because Refraction falls off once Damien dies. And that is huge. Mm. Huge. Because then the back line has to be like, wait, we actually have to like close? Oh, God. We have to walk? Walking's for peasants. Right? We don't walk. That's like our thing. Uh, so it was rough. Uh, and he played a, a great game. Um, and like, even though I thought I had thrown him off balance, he continued to just run it ice cold in the veins. And uh, like I said, if I hadn't ha had been able to drop Ophelia, and it was only because she had like injured six, and then I asked her to make a the box opens duel, uh, and she died. Because you need to flip the red, that didn't pan out. So without that, uh, it, that that one hundred percent could have been anybody's game. And so really, what it comes down to is like, if you want to fight Damien, if you're like, no, 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 I think it's a challenge and I must win. Bring a lot of ranged firepower and the ability to reduce damage, because Ophelia is being able to drop upgrades to reduce damage is what kept her on the table as long as it did uh, to get her those extra that extra activation. That's cool. Thank you. Yeah, so for, for the listeners at home who are uh, not familiar with it there, basically LVO 
was back-to-back weekends with Captain Khan. I was at LVO, so was uh, Andre there. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to get a Captain Con episode in or not. That's still up in the air. We, we shall decide this later. Basically, what we've uh, talked about here with uh, Damien and Andre at LVO happened again the following weekend at Captain Con. So, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's, let's be fully truthful here. Andre's Captain Con experience was tragically marred because he had one less overall differential it was only <laughs> plus 25 over five rounds not plus 26 yeah i was slipping i i had to call it there knock that rust yeah. off man I, I blame ophelia for that yeah. <laughs> yes well and that's really what i hope people take away from this is because i've heard people being like oh well you know andre on damien i mean yeah damien's good but like andre's also really good so it's probably just andre being good at the game I want to reiterate for people that are looking at my Captain Con Rampage. I, as a player, I'll, I'll admit I'm good. Like, I have the pride to admit that I am pretty good at the game. However, comma, Sam Barrows and Landon Sheehan are also really darn good at the game. And the fact that I was able to not take wins into them, but, like, metaphorically slam their faces into the table with 7-1 and 8-0 is dumb. I shouldn't be able to do that. And I, I'm hoping that's what people take away from these wins here and the wins at Captain Con. I mean, Landon and Sam, are those are guys who know their game. Yeah, they absolutely do. Because that's Sam from uh, Danger Planet. And uh, what what's the podcast that Landon does? Uh, Bad Fohaku. Uh, he's also done some Danger Planet stuff. But yeah, I, I genuinely consider Landon, like, for sure a better player than me. And Sam uh, has been upping his game a lot. So he could actually, at this point, be comparable or even better than me but it wasn't like the games weren't close like it was still just like cool uh this thing happened and the the problem was they had all the time in the world to plan for this right like it's not like i was doing this secretively or like oh boys surprise it's damien no i was literally shouting off the rooftops like i am playing damien please kick my ass and they not only could they not do it they got demolished and that to me is the problem is is the most strong indicator anyway to, to, to drop that mic back down. <laughs> so I, I feel like th- th- that's what you're plugging here before we go is your... Uh... Nerf Damien. <laughs> yeah, Nerf Damien. No, uh, my, my true parting comments are, uh, as always, for anything, uh, long may the God Empress reign. And actually, I am planning on starting to play her again. I'm, I'm getting back on... Uh, the Nakima horse here starting up in March locally. So look out for that. Awesome. Okay, here's a question. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, there's new Nephilim then because, you know, Caster brought friends. He sure did. Are you looking at including any of those into to tweak the Nakima a little bit? Into certain crews, yes. Because Cavern Nephilim having stealth is just good. Because Matures have this tragic weakness of being able to get gunned down like dogs in the street. Uh, and I just... It hurts me to watch it happen. So Cavern Nephilim with Stealth uh, turns that off a lot. And also they have an attack at range 8 while Stealth prevents it down to range 6. So they can kind of play a KG game into Gun Cruise. So I'm looking forward to that. Atherak, I was up on at the start and am currently thinking he's probably something of a bait. Uh, because, you know, the, the shielded when he overhealing is cool. But once again, the premise of, hey, when you waste your healing, get a cool benefit. And I just like can't quite vibe with that so cavern Nephilim, yes athrak i'm on the fence at this point but yeah 
I mean, he could chuck out those uh, rune stones to protect the matures. And, you know. He can. Yeah. He can. But that, that henchman's, henchman slot is precious. And if you're telling me that he's competing with Hayridan, I got a lot of thinking to do before I accept that one. Fair enough. Thank you for coming on. Uh, hey, thank you for coming to LVO. Thanks for having us. It was a yeah, good, it was a good show. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Pleasure to have you at tournaments. Pleasure to know you, sir. Well, thank you, Doug. I appreciate that. It's been a pleasure as well. You as well, Ambrose, uh, also. I, I don't want to, you know, be uh, stoking Andre's ego too much. You two <laughs> are some of my favorite people in Malifaux, and it's exciting to have you on the podcast together here to talk about Damien's balls. Well, thank you, Doug. I wouldn't rather discuss that topic with anyone else. Students of Conflict is brought to you by Top Doug Design. Check out topdougdesign.com for all of your Malifaux terrain needs. Top Doug Design, 3D printable designs to enhance your tabletop. Students of Conflict is not an official product of Weird Miniatures LLC. All intellectual property belonging to Weird Miniatures is used with permission. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of entities they represent. Any content provided by our guests and or hosts are their opinion and not intended to malign any group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. Woo! ball talk <laughs> i'm thinking that's a good idea hey man you do you this is your podcast you know good luck editing around this i'm glad i stayed logged in for this